should just spend the first five minutes doing nothing but staring at each other. Take a nap. Just sleep better. I can do that one. Just start the stream. Nobody say a word for like a minute and see if everyone's like, uh, audio's not working. But we all <laughs> talk, but don't actually say words. Just like lip. Just mute our mics. Yeah, I just mute our mics, yeah. <laughs> Everybody would, oh my gosh. It's like, audio seems like it's working for us. I know. <laughs> just keep repeating it over and over. Yeah. Refresh, refresh your browser, just refresh. Yeah. The broadcast is now starting. All attendees are in listen-only mode. <laughs> well, that's why I never pluck chicken uh, with the scissors. With some scissors. That's yeah, no, that's a good point. Dangerous activity. Yeah. Mm. That's solid advice. It's I mean, terrifying. The, the 15 minute story leading up to that. Oh. I'm so glad I didn't miss it. Oh. Yeah. I almost threw it three times. <laughs> That's a lot of like emotion. The pictures he sh- shared with us. I mean, that was the worst part. Uh, yeah. You can't, you can't unsee it. Uh, For sure. I don't know how they got that chicken inside out like that. Yeah, that's all we had. That's, that's it. it. We're done. Right, we're done. Well, hopefully Chris Sanders can carry the rest of the conversation. <laughs> I can talk about chicken for the next 45 minutes. That's no problem at all. <laughs> I think that's bad. Wait till you hear the story about Tommy the turtle. Oh, oh Tommy. Oh. There's like an entire place in Texas right now filled with turtles. <laughs> yeah, I think I saw that. Yeah. Isn't that the whole state right now? Just uh, I keep expecting that kid that says like I like turtles to show up like at that facility. <laughs> I like turtles. I like turtles. <laughs> Wasn't uh he was being interviewed, right? Like on TV and he's wearing yeah. uh Halloween, you know, plastic yeah. or whatever. She's like, What are you supposed to be? He's like, I like turtles. Terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> For all of you who showed up early for the pre-show banter, thanks. Uh, you may have thought the webcast was going to be earlier, but Michael Allen needed to eat lunch, uh, so we postponed over an hour. <laughs> yeah, lunch Did you eat for lunch, lunch, Michael? <laughs> I had a frozen pizza. Huh. The whole thing? Sorry. You get like four in a box. We all waited an hour just so you could have a frozen pizza. <laughs> <laughs> Did you defrost the pizza at least? <laughs> oh yeah, I didn't eat it frozen. A cooked oh, frozen. Okay. <laughs> I, I thought it first. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what, what toppings did you have? What what kind of pizza? Oh, uh, I don't know. <laughs> you don't remember <laughs> whatever was in the box. <laughs> was that good? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. That's, that's, that is a good story. Can we please tell this one again? Let's go one more time. <laughs> more round. <laughs> All right, try again. What did you Ryan have? Will, Ryan will make sure it's in the uh, in the recording. <laughs> yeah, I can do that. <laughs> I can do that. Uh, Bam Proc said, "Damn divas." I think that's for Michael. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, yeah, yeah. I was hungry. <laughs> and Christian said any pizza can be a personal oh. pizza if you try hard and believe in yourself that is correct that is also true I was talking about this with my wife the other day I was like you know what pizza sucks DiGiorno that stuff is not good it's oh, not it's like horrible. delivery it is horrible oh, man it's the worst no yeah. uh, I don't want to judge your frozen pizza but I did yeah, try to figure out a way to make it taste <laughs> better because usually the DiGiorno the crust is not like it's soggy or soft or something but if you don't put it in the middle rack, you put it 
one rack lower. Oh, better. this is the secret. Okay. There's okay. a secret. Here's the trick too: convection oven. Oh mm-hmm. yeah, that is also the trick. A little oh, bit yeah. of airflow in there gets everything yeah. a little crispy. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's still frozen pizza, though. I, you no, know. cooking pro tip. Go buy a convection oven, okay? <laughs> yes. It will change your life. Even a convection, a convection oven will even make those little, like, a dollar and 20 cent Totino's party pizzas taste good. And that's something yeah. true. It's really? True. Yeah. Also no. for reheating stuff, especially. Is the, okay. Is the joint like a brand of frozen pizza? Is that what that is? Yes. It is, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, and that. the only that reason we bring it up is because there was a million advertisements all through my youth about how this was the pizza to buy. It so. was. Uh, that, 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 that's so. really the first red flag. Like, yeah. you have to advertise it. It's usually going to be pretty crappy. Yeah. Like, I, I was fond of the bagel bites. Bagel bites, hot pockets, another uh, fine gourmet. Oh, yeah, until you don't cook it long enough in the microwave and it's frozen in the middle, or you cook it too long and you have liquid hot lava and you burn your mouth. So Michelin actually makes their version of a Hot Pocket now. And it's excellent. It's like a normal Hot Pocket, but with like better ingredients. It's good stuff. Mm. Try it. Interesting. Mm. All right. Mm. What I hate about a Hot Pocket is you burn your tongue on the first bite and you can't taste any more of your Hot Pocket. (laughs) (laughs) Damn it. This flavor sucks. I can't taste anything. We haven't had a hot pocket yet. It's one of the American things that I've not had yet. Is hot pocket? Yeah, someone please send Marcello yeah, hot pocket. It's, it's a pretty pass. Yeah, yeah, there are other things that I'm sure you haven't tried that we can send you. No, I'm not sending you a hot pocket. <laughs> I, no, I, 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 I tried a pop tart, and that wasn't a good experience. Oh, God, the pop tart, man. <laughs> Toaster like strudel, one million calories. Toaster <laughs> strudel. That's where you go. <laughs> skip the skip the uh, pop tart. Go to toasted strudel. Did you toast it or did you just eat it like a monster, like raw? I think I tried. I, I did both because I wanted to see like which one was like better. And yeah, no, there's no making it better. Like it's it's pretty crappy either way. Michael Allen, it's his first webcast. He's stoically just like just <laughs> yeah. waiting for you jerks to stop talking so I could talk about technical <laughs> stuff. Marcello was have to hide the body. This would be any any call. I'm just, <laughs> this would be any call. All calls yeah. just like this. Yeah. <laughs> so, like I was telling Jason the other day, like um, I haven't actually watched very many uh, BHIS videos that are uh, available online, and and I, I saw that we have the the banter section like in the videos, but I was just amazed that like people would actually want to watch that. Because <laughs> I'm the kind of person who watches YouTube videos at 2x speed and uh, would skip straight to the part that I want to see and and try and get through that part as quickly as possible. So, yeah, I'm I'm, uh, I'm just all about the, the whatever the goal is that we're trying What's to get the to. Content, give me the, give me the content. Yeah. I want your stupid dialogue. He doesn't think we're funny. That's what yeah, I'm. Gonna that's, that's what I heard. Honestly, yeah. you guys are not funny. Look at me. No laughs. Not one. <laughs> like you, John has a thing too. He's like, do not tell jokes. My company ever. <laughs> oh. Can you guys see me at all? Yeah, yeah, yeah. great. You look amazing. Oh, thank you, sir. Appreciate yeah. it. When did you shave the beard? A very long time ago, Jason. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. Wow. Marcello, like, <laughs> where are you? Awkward. Oh, my apartment in Colorado. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. It just it kind of looks like a hotel room with the the window like right behind you with the the curtains. 
Yeah, no, you it does look like a hotel somewhere. curtain. I mean, my, my apartment is the same size of a hotel room, honestly. So, I mean, not com- technically wrong. Oh, that's rough. <laughs> <laughs> that's rough. <laughs> oh, well, we just dissed your curtains, too. We called yeah. them hotel. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, you know, those curtains, they, know what, they know what they did. It's fine. Right. No, <laughs> you don't have aluminum foil over the windows, so that's good. That yeah. is true. I mean, yeah, I just took it down just for you guys. That's what. That's why. I <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Hurry, hey, they already think I'm crazy. But no, little there was a period of time in my life where I would only go in houses that were covered in aluminum foil on the windows. But that's fine. Huh. So you didn't go <laughs> to many places. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, but the places I went to had aluminum foil. Like, windows. I have some follow-up questions. Crab shack yeah. again. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> This is the crab shack. <laughs> no, we, we need to not talk about that again. Bam truck, call them hotel curtains, but when you pull them, it gets dark. And that is true. Hotel curtain windows, hotel curtains are nice. Sometimes when you wake up in a hotel and you're like, oh man, I can't believe I like woke up early. And then you open the window, you're like, oh God, it's like noon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's 3 p.m. <laughs> <laughs> I was supposed to check out 20 minutes ago. <laughs> but we have chris sanders here and if anyone has any questions about the rural tech bond or even how to pronounce rural uh, i think we'll ask everyone here to say rural once and see how they say it starting with marcello marcello how would you say rural tech fund i would say it uh with a french accent so i would say rural that's what i would say fancy ralph i'm gonna say rural (laughs) there we go that's best i got all right, Deb? Mm, RTF. <laughs> I would skip the word rural. <laughs> right to the acronym. That's all I got. How would you say it? Now that I'm thinking about it, there's just so much pressure. Let's see. Rule. Ro- see, I, I failed. Rule. <laughs> I'm thinking about it, so I can't do here's, it. Here's the secret. The secret is, as you, as you are more rural, the word becomes one syllable. Rural. Rural. There's there's absolutely a, a second R in there, and it's <laughs> like it's definitely rural. Uh, I actually lost a spelling bee when I was in elementary school because of that word. <laughs> because the person who was calling out the word says rule. And I'm like, well, okay, this is super simple. R-U-L-E, right? And and they're like, no. And I'm like, how did I misspell rule? Like <laughs> they didn't and, use it in a sentence? Yeah. Well, that's the worst spelling bee ever. It never occurred to me that they were, they were mispronouncing <laughs> rural. So uh, <laughs> I, I, wouldn't, I, I didn't feel like I needed to ask for it in a, in a sentence or you know, anything like that. Oh, man, that is a super frustrating memory. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like it has stuck with you for a while. Totally. It has. It's almost, like, it's almost like we knew that and we planned for Chris to be here in order mm-hmm. to like tackle you and remind you of your... Your failure in elementary school. Yeah. This is actually Our a session. We're here to let you unrepress that memory and talk through it. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> we can talk about it. <laughs> Are you okay? You wanna, well, how you doing? Now that we've started things that I need to talk about, let's <laughs> 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 open up to you guys. <laughs> so, so I, I don't want to open that can of worms. We don't have the time. <laughs> Well, for everyone here, thanks so much for being here for Pre-Show Banter. Uh, we're going to ask Chris Sanders about RTF, Rural Tech Fund, 
what it is, we're sponsoring it right now as a part of the Spearfish General Store. We got the new Black Hills Information Security t-shirts and $2 of every shirt we sell will go to the Rural Tech Fund. And it used to be the net proceeds. Like We're like, hey, we'll take all the net proceeds, whatever's left over. And we did the first campaign back last year at the end of the year. And at the end of it, I asked the person who handles like all the finances and everything. I was like, all right, so how much is left over? How much can we get to the Instant Lives Foundation? And she's like, negative $6,000. What? She's like, yeah, international shipping is a really expensive. And I was like, oh. Uh, so we didn't charge enough for shipping. We didn't charge enough for handling. We didn't do any of that. So in essence, we lost a ton of money. So what we did is we just decided to take $2 for every shirt we sold, give it to the charity. So that's what we're doing now with Chris. Because at first we're like, hey, Chris, we'll give you the net proceeds. And then when I found out there is none, we just switched it over to that. So that way, uh, I think at this point, uh, I can get a running tally, but I think it's over $2,000 that we'll be donating to World Tech Fund. And I'm going to bring up the website here in a second. But if you could tell us what the Rural Tech Fund is, why you started it, and uh, how people can donate. Yeah, so I'm from Graves County, Kentucky. I'm going to venture to say no one on this webinar who who doesn't know me has heard of Graves County, Kentucky. You really got to want to get there. Like I'm talking flying to Nashville, driving three hours northwest to get there. So. Needless to say, there's, there's not a lot going on there other than, than kind of agricultural stuff. And particularly at the time I was growing up, not a lot of stuff going on for people who are interested in technology, right? The fact that I even made it into a technical career was really just thanks to a couple of teachers who cared about me and, and a fair bit of luck and, and some privilege too along the way. So as I you know, went on in my career, traveled around a lot. And one of the kind of the universal things I saw was that talent was distributed equally, but opportunity was not. So what I want to do with the Rural Tech Fund is go into rural communities like mine and basically give people the things they need to, one, know and learn about technology careers and that they exist and, and the various facets of those. And if they're already, already interested, give them the things that they need to get a leg up and you know, take that to the next level. Go to, uh, go to college for computer science or something like that. Go to trade school. Go straight into the job market. Just give them the things they need to, to enter that career and get you know, get the great things that come with it, right? Like generally tech jobs are higher paying, especially in communities with uh, lower um, lower economic resources. And oftentimes those jobs can be worked remotely. So now you have someone in a low-income area who's making a high income and is now spending that money in that area. Not only are they kind of bringing their own family out of generational poverty, they're lifting up the whole community. So a lot of direct and indirect benefits from that. And it all stems from this idea of working with people who care about kids in the community, which generally is going to be teachers, giving them things like Arduinos and Raspberry Pis and 3D printers and stuff like that, and helping them start technology programs in their schools. Uh, and so that's really what we do. And how long has it been going for, Chris? So we started in 2008. A couple of ways to help out. Uh, one is certainly you can donate. 100% of the money we raise goes uh, directly to the causes. We don't pay salaries or our marketing costs are covered elsewhere and all that. So if you donate a dollar, a hundred pennies of it goes to the cause. So we're really proud of that. So chances are, if you're listening to this, you know a teacher. And that teacher may be interested in teaching kids about technology in some way, some form or fashion. We want to help them out. So if you know them, send them this link, ruraltechfund.org slash fundmyproject. This tells a little bit about the types of projects we fund. And there's a link there and there's basically a survey monkey thing you can fill out. And that goes straight to me. So folks fill that out, 
and we don't make folks jump through a lot of hoops. Many times I've had one of these submitted on a Monday and we've written the check on a Friday. Sometimes teachers know what they want. Sometimes they don't. We work with them, connect them with other teachers who are doing cool things like starting robotics clubs, doing competitive robotics, teaching kids how to code, all that cool stuff. And for most teachers who want to work with us or, or need some help here, this page is a little place that that starts. It, it's a very rewarding job because we get to we get to hear from all the, these kids and these teachers and, and all the cool stuff they have going on. And you know, we have stories. I know you know I know y'all are based out of not all of you individually, but the company is based out of South Dakota, right? You know, I was just looking and, and we've done work in uh, Corsica, South Dakota, and Iroquois, and, and Millette, and Scotland, and Esteline, and a lot of these different places. And I know, I know one of those, uh, I think it was, it was Corsica, for instance, we, um, we helped them start their first ever robotics team. And that's not so much discreetly just computer technology, that's engineering and a lot of other things, which makes it a really cool project for schools that have never taught any form of computer science. And when we, they start these clubs, they start doing the competitive thing with it. So like VEX robotics competitions and, and going around to those. And you see a lot of great things happen. One is, is certainly the kids who are already interested in technology, like, they just realize that these are all these great things I can do about it. And they start networking, right? We think about networking as kind of this adult thing that business people mm-hmm. do, but the kids do it too. And they make these friends who now we have these tools where they can, you know, they can talk online and, you know, I was the only kid interested in tech in my school. And now I found this other person and we can collaborate and, you know, get better together. And that's, that's pretty cool. But it also just gets other kids interested in it. They see, wow, my classmates built a robot. Wouldn't it be neat to do that? So they have all these kids who were never interested in tech before who are now. And that's pretty cool. Um, in some cases, we have kids who really don't know what they're capable of until they get in there and they do great things. Um, I'm reminded of a school we worked with in a town called Tornado, West Virginia. They, we helped them fund their robotics team, and they ended up being one of the top-ranked teams in their state after they competed the first year. Like They were ranked second in the state of West Virginia and one of the top-ranked teams in the country and got to compete in international competition. And these are a bunch of kids from a coal town in West Virginia who maybe never thought that technology careers would be something they could do. And now it is. So we're seeing a lot of people take these things, a lot of these kids, and take these into, into industry, right? And that's security for some people, but it's also engineering and design and programming and lots of other technical careers too. That's really cool. I wanted to ask someone like Marcello and, and Ralph and like Michael, like, how did you get started in tech? Like, so, Marcello, I'll start with you. Like, how did you get started doing things with computers? Well, funnily enough, uh, I was in sort of the same situation where um, I grew up in a really rural, rural, rural town <laughs> in Italy. And um, I just uh, I really had nothing else to do except to, you know, play around with the compact computer uh, that my parents had. And that sort of led me down the path. So, I was thinking it might be interesting to start like an international version of this for. Uh, for Italy, that'd be kind of cool. But yeah, no, that's, that's, that's essentially how I started. Ralph, how about you? How did you get started in computers? I don't know. As a kid, we had an old computer, and I kept wanting to play some video game on it. I think it was like some skate chase game or something, and I couldn't get it to work. And I kept messing with it over and over again. And then eventually I was like, hey, you can plug this thing to the internet, but it's like a really old computer. And so I think I just got into it because I wanted to make it work, and I couldn't let go of the fact that it wasn't working. So mm-hmm. I just kept going. Okay. And then, Michael, how'd you get started in computers? Yeah, pretty stuff? much the same thing. Like, I got uh, old computers or, like, toy computers whenever I was a kid and uh, tried to do things with them, you know, try, like the old ones, tried to make them work. 
and uh, and tried to make like programs work on them and stuff like that. I think one of the computers uh, actually came with, in, like in the instruction manual, it had a few like sample programs that you could write in BASIC that would run on the computer. And so uh, I like just going through that and uh, and playing with it and stuff just got me interested in it. So same question for the audience, for those of you that are in Discord, if you want to uh, answer in the live chat, like how do you get started in computers? And, you know, do you think something like the Rural, rural Tech Fund would have helped you if, if you were in a certain situation? Or maybe how many people out there didn't get a chance to start in computers because they didn't have something like the Rural Tech Fund? Hey, Jason, you, you didn't ask me, but I want to answer your question because I think it feeds sure. into some of this. Mm-hmm. I, I got started in computers because my cousin built a meth lab. <laughs> Now, that's kind of a that's kind of a weird segue, um, um, but I, I think most of us know that like that, that drug addiction and particularly meth, a big problem in rural areas. Uh, meth specifically in rural areas because of the ingredients need to make it are also used in farming and, and so on. So my cousin, there was not a lot of economic opportunity in Graves County, Kentucky. He built a meth lab. He, as you do, got caught building said meth lab. Went to prison. While in prison, took a computer class because they happened to offer them, came back, started messing around with computers a little bit. I was just a little kid and he was on house arrest at my aunt's house. I was there from time to time. I would see him using the computer and I got interested in it kind of Mm -hmm. in the same way that many of of y'all did in y'all's stories. And then, you know, kind of went on from there. So he didn't stick with computers, unfortunately. I did and it it changed my life and hopefully it's changing the lives of a lot of other people. But um I don't know, an interesting aside as to how kind of the rural conditions, both good and bad, shaped what I'm doing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Somebody else just said, meth lab to computers, Precio banter just went up a notch. So, <laughs> um, this is um, going to be the best pre-show ever. It's yes. given Maryland to run for its money. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Finally. For, every- <laughs> uh, for everyone here, this is not the webcast. The webcast will begin in 16 minutes. This is called Precio banter. That's where we get here early because you get here early. You get here early because we get here early. It's a vicious cycle. It's terrible. We actually started 40 minutes early today because we just wanted <laughs> Next show is going to be two hours of pre-show banter, I heard. I mean, it's like the 10 <laughs> minutes. <laughs> Whew, well, because awesome. Michael needed to eat a frozen pizza before we started today, so he asked us to delay an hour. So Yeah. DiGiorno, mm-hmm. I know it. <laughs> <laughs> He doesn't even know, probably. Do you? I know. I have no idea oh. what brand was. Or tea, or what was another brand? Like the Tombstone. That's it. Tombstone, yeah. Tombstone. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, Red Baron. Whatever it was, it was not that expensive. Like, it was not as, it was no name brand like DiGiorno. It was, it was like a dollar frozen pizza. Where do you get a dollar frozen pizza? Dollar store frozen pizza. Dollar tree frozen pizza. <laughs> I didn't know they frozen pizza. <laughs> I like that you're not letting us make you feel bad. You're like, no, just letting it rip. (laughs) I got the cheapest pizza I could find ever. This is the bottom, but I do feel content and full. (laughs) Usually, like, even a pretty bad pizza is still pretty good. It's still pizza. Still pizza. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm dropping the link to the Spearfish General Store if anyone's interested in getting a shirt. We have the new shirts, the red team, blue team, uh, Spread Hunter shirts. So if you are interested in that, $2 goes to $2 that our shirt goes to the Rural Tech Fund. But please don't buy a shirt to donate to the Rural Tech Fund. 
donate to the Rural Tech Fund. And if you want a shirt, get one, and then we'll put some money towards that. But instead of spending $20 on a t-shirt for us, if that's not what you want, then please just give the Rural Tech Fund money. And I really do, like, give them money. Like, that's that's why they're here. Because they do great work, and we want you to support them. And this isn't like, we're not a vendor selling you Rural Tech Fund. Like, there's no... <laughs> There's no sponsorship here. It's just like just give money to the Rural Tech Fund, or if you're a company, sponsor the Rural Tech Fund, like whatever it is. Just yeah, and I'll I'll add in there. I mean, one of the cool things I think about the way we run the nonprofit is we don't pay any salaries, and overhead is covered by another corporate sponsor. So 100 percent of what gets donated goes to classrooms, goes to kids, goes to people. Virtually no charities do that. I'm excited because I. I I want people to know when they donate a dollar, a hundred cents of it is going to the thing they think it is. And it's not going to pay my salary or someone else's salary or, or we're not spending 80% of it on marketing costs. Mm, uh, yeah. It all goes to the cause, which I'm pretty proud of. Mm. Yeah. And that's one of the things that we look for too, when we are looking for a group to partner with. So we did that with the Innocent Lives Foundation. They just do an amazing work funding and unveiling predators online. And then World Tech Fund's doing great work providing computer services to rural areas all right so this is a great comment regular jeremy just said uh probably bgis probably sucking at charity and capitalism <laughs> yeah yeah there was a moment i hope that doesn't ouch 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 it is now time for me and michael allen everybody else kill your cameras and uh head to your battle station hello everybody welcome to a black hills information security webcast we just have chris sanders with us from rural tech fund we're helping to support them in the work that they're doing. We always look for a charity to support with our t-shirt sales. Uh, and $2 of every shirt we sell goes to the Rural Tech Fund until the pre-order window is over next Thursday. Uh, so if anyone's interested, we'll drop the link in good webinar for that. Today, though, you're here for a webcast from Michael Allen on OPSEC Fundamentals for Red Remote Red Teams. If you have a question at any time, feel free to ask it. But Michael's got like 50 to 55 minutes of content today. So what that means is we have a team of people in the back end that are going to try to answer your question the best we can, either in Discord or in GoToWebinar. So feel free to ask in Discord or GoToWebinar. If you're not on Discord, we have a link there. Just join us in the live chat. It's got a big red button or big red circle, and that is where we are live right now. And with that, Michael, it's all yours. I'll see you in about 50 minutes unless there's any complications or problems, and then I'll pop back on. But other than that, it's all yours. All right, cool. Sounds good. So like Jason said, this is OPSEC Fundamentals for Remote Red Teams. And uh, my name is Michael Allen. I go by White Rhino online. I've been pen testing and doing red teams professionally since 2014. I'm a security analyst now at BHIS, been uh, there since 2019. Got a few certifications in InfoSec, but I don't have any formal training in OPSEC. This is all this stuff in this talk is just kind of from my own personal experience and stuff that's been shared with me by others in the community. Still make a lot of mistakes on all the projects that I do. And so I'm just sharing some lessons that I've learned today. So to kick this off, the, the title of the talk is OPSEC Fundamentals for Remote Red Teams. But I know not everybody uh, might be familiar with the term OPSEC. So if you're not familiar with it, that term OPSEC, it's a military term, it means operations security. And this is the definition from Wikipedia that I've got here on this slide. And 
there are three main components of this definition that I wanted to point out. So uh, operation security, uh, number one, determines if friendly actions, that's things we do, can be observed by enemy intelligence. Uh, number two, determines if information uh, obtained by those adversaries could be interpreted in ways that would be useful to them. And then number three, the friendly side, us, executes selected measures that eliminate or reduce the enemy's ability to exploit that information that they've collected. And so uh, you saw the image that was on the, the title slide, and you'll see this image here on this slide. Uh, both of these are posters from World War II. Uh, these were OPSEC posters from that time. So they were reminders to anybody, you know, maybe they're not even in the military. Maybe they are like military family member or somebody that works in a factory that builds things for the military or something like that that uh, even the smallest, you know, seemingly trivial little details that they might share in passing conversation could give the enemy some kind of information that they could act on to, to you know, take action, do successful attacks against our side. The other half of the title, remote red teams, in the context of this talk, that's going to mean uh, cyber attacks that we do across the internet for uh, our customers, which is that, that's the target organization in this case, is our customers. They've come to us. Uh, usually, we'll have like a trusted point of contact at any customer, and they are the only one that knows that the exercise is going on. So it might be a C-level executive. It might be someone who's in charge of the security team, but someone who's a decision maker who can orchestrate this kind of exercise without letting their security team know that this is going to go on. And because the security team doesn't know that this is happening, they are responding to the things that they observe us doing, uh, just like it's a real attack, because for all intents and purposes, it may very well be. Now, this is remote red teams specifically, so uh, I'm not going to talk about physical security or wireless security and the OPSEC that you would need to consider regarding those types of things if they were in scope. Also, I'm really only going to talk about things that happen from the beginning of the project up to the initial breach. So uh, that's because this, this content is kind of a spinoff of the content for my red team getting access class that's coming up. And that class is primarily focused on those things that happen in the first half of the red team exercise where you're trying to get that initial foothold. So that's what I'm going to talk about as far as these red, or, I'm sorry, OPSEC concerns here today. So why is OPSEC important for red teams? I said that uh, you know, these things that we're doing, they're authorized by the, the target customer, but it, it sounds like what we're doing is we're trying to, you know, hide some of the evidence of these things that we're doing. So why do we care about hiding evidence if, you know, what we're doing is legal and we don't have to worry about any legal repercussions? Well, one thing is the way that the InfoSec community and the InfoSec industry works is that the adversary side, the offensive security side and the defensive side share information together about how successful attacks happen. Uh, about how things are successfully defended. So because of that, uh, we really don't have any uh, secret weapons that we're going to, you know, something we're going to do that the blue team couldn't potentially see coming ahead of time. They, they have the potential, they have the, the resources and the information is out there available. So, you know, they could ex be expecting pretty much anything that we're going to do. Uh, so we want to have every advantage that we can possibly have you know, the element of surprise, that type of thing. We don't want to give away these actions before they actually happen. Also, modern blue teams have access to information that doesn't just consist of 
the things that they can observe themselves. So traditionally, blue teams have always had access to the logs on their internet-facing systems where uh, you know things are interacting with those systems coming in from the internet. They've also had access to the logs on their internal systems that are you know, making connections out to the internet. But in addition to those things, they can also get intelligence from third parties who are these services that are going out and say scanning things on the internet and uh, finding suspicious behavior whenever it, it can be detected ahead of time. So, you know, services and, and servers that are being stood up that are running suspicious services, or maybe like suspicious domain names that are being registered, anything like that. These threat intelligence services, they can identify these things and provide that information to the blue team. And then the blue team can use other tools to analyze and correlate that information along with their own information that they've collected from their own systems and draw some conclusions that can be really detrimental to the things that we want to do as red teams. Like I said, they could potentially stop things before they happen. So the analogy that I like to use to describe this kind of situation is the analogy of a connect the dots picture. So I've got a really simple connect the dots diagram here. And basically, blue, the red team does not want the blue team to connect the dots. And every time that the red team does something that's observable by the blue team, the, the red team is leaving another dot behind. So uh, with enough of those dots, like you can see in the picture here, the blue team can complete the entire picture and uh, they can see you know, who the red team is, uh, what tools or infrastructure they're using, and they may even be able to prevent those attacks before they occur. And that's really, really frustrating if you're on the side of the red team. And before you realize that the blue team uh, was able to figure out you know, who you were or what you were going to do, they've already done it. And that, when you run into that situation, you're trying to do attacks or whatever, and those things just aren't working and you don't know why. So we have to come up with some possible countermeasures that the red team can do to try and frustrate the blue team whenever they're trying to connect these dots. The first one is just don't leave any dots behind. So you'll see I've, in the diagram I've erased some of the dots that were there. So it makes it a little bit more difficult to uh, you know, connect the dots and, and draw the picture of the rhinoceros, but it's still possible. And this would be kind of akin to like a burglar uh, who's about to uh, break into a house, putting on gloves. And what they want to do is they don't want to leave any fingerprints behind. So they put on those gloves to cover up their fingerprints. So Kind of like that, uh, we tried to do actions that don't leave any evidence of that action behind. Uh, number two, whenever we can't help but leave a dot, we try not to leave other clues that associate that dot with any other dots that we leave behind. So to represent that in the diagram, I've taken away the numbers from the remaining dots. So, you know, again, this is a pretty simple diagram, still pretty easy to see it, it draws a rhinoceros. But, you know, in a more complex scenario, maybe there aren't some lines there to help out it might be a little bit less obvious what all of those dots are indicating. And then number three, to can create dots that associate dots with other unrelated dots. So that, that basically just means like uh, leaving disinformation to do things that are going to frustrate efforts to, to draw uh, relationships between the evidence that's left behind because you know, it leads you off down a different path. Just like if you were to follow the numbers in this diagram, they would not draw a rhinoceros anymore. Now, in this webcast, I'm only really going to be talking about number two. The reason for that is number one has more to do with uh, the things that we do, like, say, during passive recon, whenever we're interacting with third parties to try and gain information about our target. 
and or we're doing other things that just they, they would have no ability to see that we're doing that really. And number three, uh, the disinformation part, we don't really ever do that on any of the red team exercises that I'm involved in. One reason is because our, our time frame is like for the whole red team exercise, we have a set time frame. It's already pretty short. Then for the portion that I'm talking about in this webcast, we're talking about half of that. So we really just don't have time to go out there and do a whole bunch of extra stuff to you know, confuse things any further. We're usually trying to move the attack forward throughout the entire thing that we're doing, you know, the portion of the red team that we're responsible for. So I won't be talking about either of those in this webcast, though they certainly could be used in those contexts. There are also other threats to the red team beyond just the blue team that we should also uh, be wary of. One is data leaks, and these could be data leaks that are observed by anyone. So I'm sure you've all heard of like Amazon S3 buckets, uh, you know, being exposed to the internet insecurely, and there being all kinds of data in there about customers or something like that. Well, if the red team was to leak information about themselves or their customers, that would be really damaging to the company's reputation. It could be damaging to the customers, could violate non-disclosure agreements or things like that, because customers don't usually want you to tell everyone uh, that you know, who they had doing their security testing. So uh, that would be one very damaging thing that could happen based on the information that we're leaking out there on the internet. The other thing that's bad that could happen is we could be attacked by real world threat attack or threat actors. So, you know, there's always these threat actors out there on the internet who are scanning network services and looking for ways to attack stuff that's out there. And when we're operating on a red team, we're setting up servers, we're, we're running network services, we're doing all the things that you normally do in any type of you know, technical job that involves computers and the internet. And uh, we always also have to be wary that there are real world attackers out there while we're you know, trying to be the attacker during our red team exercise. So I've broken the process for assessing red team actions down into these four steps here. So first of all, uh, we want to plan any likely actions that we're going to do. On any given red team exercise, we're always going to do recon. It's very common that we're going to do like password guessing, very common that we're going to do some phishing, stuff like that, uh, that we know ahead of time that we're probably going to do that. We want to go ahead and plan that out. And then after we plan that, go ahead and brainstorm some of the things that we think might be disclosed by those actions that we're going to take. Some of these might be obvious and some of them might not be obvious, but Really think deeply about what kind of information could be disclosed or observed when we take those actions, and then assess whether that information that we disclose uh, could be used against us in some way. So thinking about uh, you know what is that information that we're disclosing, because you know, the nature of the information itself is going to determine whether it could be used against us or not, maybe. Also, who can see it? So if we're sharing it with a third party, but we expect that we have you know, a reasonable level of privacy with that third party, maybe it's not quite as much of an issue. Uh, and is it likely for that information to be used against the red team? And then number four, adjust our plans uh, to mitigate those risks so that we can take care of that ahead of time before it becomes an issue. And when I'm doing this on my own, you know, looking at this from the perspective of my own procedures and stuff that I do on red teams, I try and build this into my procedures so that in the future, I can repeat the same process and I'm constantly getting better at this. So the process I use to do that is to just document those steps that I've taken and then apply them 
you know, go through that documentation whenever I'm doing those phases of the red team exercise in the future. And this would apply to any phase like setup, reconnaissance, attacks, those kinds of things that I mentioned that you do pretty much every single red team exercise. You also want to apply these, uh, this process before you use any new tools or techniques uh, by setting up a test environment and seeing what those new tools or techniques look like from your target's point of view. So you can see, you know, are they seeing anything that looks suspicious? And also get into that in a little bit more detail as well as we go through this. So my standard operating procedures for Red Team OPSEC, it's kind of, I got it broken down into five sections here. There was a little bit more to begin with, but I had to cut down on some of the content to make this fit into an hour-long webcast. So this is just kind of the, the highlights. First, we'll start with local workstation setup. On my local workstation that I operate from whenever I'm doing a Red Team exercise or a penetration test or anything like that, I use virtual machines. And these are really convenient for you know, many reasons outside of OPSEC. I can get all my tools configured just the way I want them to be. I have everything installed on there. Really saves a lot of time as far as setup for each project. But from that OPSEC perspective, I can go ahead and configure everything so that it's not leaking any information about the stuff that I'm doing. So, you know, using my best practices that I've identified previously. I've also got a clean environment. So there's no artifacts left over from other customers nothing left over from any research I've done, anything like that. Uh, everything's fresh for every single project. And then it's really easy to deploy additional VMs if I find that I need another virtual machine to work from on that same project. Also, the VM images can be updated and modified without having to rebuild them from scratch by using the snapshot feature. So I make use of that all the time. Uh, and that way I only really have to rebuild my VM like maybe once or twice a year. That's, you know, maybe more frequently than I really need to, but I just like to do that so that I have everything exactly the way I want it. And I also keep a checklist of uh, the way that I've configured everything on the VM. So that way, as I'm building it the next time, I can just go through that checklist and I add to that every time. Also using a virtual machine gives you a little bit of extra protection against accidental compromise. Something to think about is, you know, whether you're using a tool that's been vetted and uh, or accepted by a lot of the security community or whether you're using a tool that you just now found today. These are all uh, hacking tools that we're downloading from the internet that were made by other hackers. And so it doesn't matter if it's maybe Kali Linux or something that's built in, you know, one of those tools that's included with it or something else. That there's always that possibility that there could be something in there that you didn't know was there that's, that's going to do something that you didn't want it to do. The basic layout organization of my virtual machines that I use uh, is kind of described here in these bullet points. So uh, on the right there, you'll see a picture of VirtualBox. That's what I prefer to use for running these virtual machines, but there are several different virtualization solutions you can use. I just like that one because it's free. Kali Linux is pretty straightforward. It's got a bunch of tools uh, already installed on that VM, and I just add a few more to it and configure the interface the way I like, and that one's pretty good to go. The Windows Attack VM, that one I have set up specifically to run any attack tools that are Windows specific and to test any executable payloads before, I'm, before I test them against antivirus or anything like that. It's to test them just to make sure they actually execute and do what they're supposed to do. So I make 
some configuration changes to that VM. I disable all the defenses on it uh, so it doesn't have any firewall or antivirus that would get in the way of getting those executable payloads to work. I also make some changes to my browser configurations and stuff like that. So that one's pretty heavily modified. Now, in contrast to that, the Windows test VM is stock. It is the latest build of Windows. I don't install any extra libraries, no development tools, nothing like that. And that way I can test on that machine if my payloads are going to be portable to other Windows systems, if they're going to run successfully without requiring any dependencies or anything that's not there. I also leave all the defenses intact so that, like for example, Windows Defender that's on most Windows systems, I can test my payloads against Windows Defender. If I find out that my target has any additional antivirus or endpoint protection software installed in their environment, I'm going to install that on there so I can test against it as well. And I also use this VM for authenticated to connections to the network since it is the most stock and the most configured similarly to their actual workstations of the VMs that I use. So some uh, specific modifications that I make to the operating systems. First of all, setting a strong password, of course. You know, like I said, there are real threat actors out there, so we need to take best practices to keep our system safe. But I also change the host name and local username. And so you'll notice I've got remote and on-site noted here under the host name and local username. What I'm trying to do is make my system look as benign as possible. Now, if I was on-site, when I'm setting this uh, host name, I'd probably set it to something like printer or desk jet so that maybe it looks a little bit like a printer that someone's plugged in at their desk. You know, maybe they went to Home Depot or Office Depot and uh, they bought a printer and they plug it in at their desk. It's just going to show up on the network as maybe printer or desk jet or something like that. But if you see printer or desk jet talking to your network from the other side of the internet, then that's going to look pretty suspicious. So there, there's a difference in context there. So for remote testing, I'm going to use a name like localhost or desktop or PC, something really generic. And that's what I set it to out of the gate. But uh, after I've done some recon and I've figured out uh, maybe the internal host naming scheme or maybe some real internal host names and internal usernames as well, I'm going to change those settings to make that match what I'm seeing in the target environment. And so you might be asking like, well, you know, it's my local host name. How is this going to get exposed, you know, during a red team exercise or something like that? Well, when you're interacting with services that are operated by your target, there's plenty of opportunity for them to either intentionally or unintentionally set things up that are going to uh, get some of that information from your computer. So you might be interacting with a service that uses NTLM authentication and during those authentication requests, you might, might not even see them happen. It could potentially elicit your username or host name. Again, with like Honeypot documents, that's another opportunity. If you download those documents from the target's website and they're made to call home, they can get your username or your host name and they can send that information back. So I'm always looking out for that kind of thing. But really, the, the biggest thing in my mind whenever I think about this is stuff that I don't know that could be used against me. There's not really any good reason that I can come up with why my host name needs to be, you know, hacker computer or my, you know, username needs to be like zero cool or something or white rhino in my case. You know, whenever I'm doing a red team, 
because that information can get leaked and that would be really embarrassing to have that information used against you by the blue team because of some kind of leak like that. You also might ask why change the domain name? This brings up another way that this information can get leaked. And I mentioned that my test VM I use for connections to the target environment. So it's really trivial for VPN servers and, and the client software to enumerate different configuration settings on your computer and report that back to the VPN server. So they can report back things like the domain name that your computer is connected to, the host name, your username, and whether it's a domain user or not, your operating system version and patch level, uh, whether expected antivirus products are installed, all kinds of stuff like that. Because your VPN client is usually running with elevated privileges on the system that you're running it on. So it would be very easy for a blue team to alert on an incoming authenticated connection uh, to their network that is from a computer that is not joined to the domain, at least that has this, at the very least, has the same name as their domain, if not a actual computer that's joined to their domain. So because that's so easy for them to do, and, and because products actually support that, that's something that I watch out for. So I try and make my test VM configured as closely as possible to the way that their actual workstations are configured. It's also really useful whenever you're keying payloads to execute in their environment, because that way you can test and make sure, you know, if I run this on a computer that actually is connected to a domain with the same name as the machine that it's intended to run on in that environment, you know, is it going to execute? And is it not going to execute if, if I run it on my other Windows VM that doesn't have the same domain name? So after I've configured my operating system, I then go in and configure all the individual tools. One setting that is seen in a lot of tools is the user agent header. This would be in pretty much any tool that is going to interact with a web server and make web requests. Things that that sends to the web server are your, your browser software and version number of that browser software or whatever that client is if it's not a browser. Also the operating system and sometimes the operating system version number. So for some examples of that, I've got two screenshots here. I got Kali Linux default web browser user agent up at the top and Windows Edge web browser down at the bottom. And uh, all I've done to get this information is just go to DuckDuckGo, type in user agent, and at the top of the search results, it tells me my user agent. And you can see that in the Kali Linux user agent string, that it actually says Linux x86-64. So it's, it's reporting that this is a Linux system and also Firefox 78.0. So it's reporting Firefox in the version that we're running. Now, in and of itself, that might not be really suspicious because, you know, lots of people run Linux, maybe. And uh, that, that user agent might be uh, used by a lot of machines on the internet. But that user agent is definitely used by every Kali Linux system on the internet. So that immediately makes that kind of suspicious to me. Some other more suspicious user agents are like the ones that are sent by NMAP and WPSCAN. And these are just a couple of examples. Uh, there's examples of this kind of thing in many hacking tools. And this is something that you always need to go in and change. So the top screenshots up here show the, the NMAP command that I ran and then the user agent that was observed. And you can see it's, it's telling you right there in the user agent, NMAP scripting engine. And then it's got the, the URL to the NMAP documentation. 
Same thing for WP Scan, which is a scanner used for scanning WordPress websites. Got the name of the tool, the version number, and a URL for accessing the WP Scan documentation. So those things right there are going to be big red flags to the blue team. You know, if they see a whole bunch of requests coming in from InMap or WP Scan or any other known hacking tools. So what you want to do is you want to change those. And what you would want to change them to is something that they're going to see on a regular basis that is not going to you know, give them any suspicion at all. In particular, you probably want to change them to something whose traffic is going to be similar to the things that you're doing. So, uh, for example, from like InMap or from WP Scan, where these scanners are potentially making a lot of web requests to the web service, you might want to use the Googlebot user agent. And that's the, the user agent that's sent whenever Google search engine goes out and indexes a website. So it's the kind of thing that's going to be making a lot of web requests. In contrast, if you're using a web browser and maybe you don't want to be sending that default user agent of the Kali Linux browser, then you could use the Google Chrome on Windows 10 user agent. So I completely throw them off. You know, you tell them it's Google Chrome, it's on a different operating system, and that's a very common uh, user agent. You can actually go out and search online and find out you know, what's the most uh, common user agent at any given time. Oh, my slides got stuck. Okay, so uh, some examples for how you would actually change that user agent. I've got some command line examples here. What I'll typically do, I want pretty much anything that I do, I wanna try and make it fail safe so that if it fails, it's safe for me. So what I'll do is I'll create some aliases in my RC file in my Linux environment, the bash or ZSH RC file. And uh, those aliases, what they do is, like if I run curl or wget and I forget to you know, use the flag to change the user agent, then they're going to go ahead and set that user agent for me so that that way, uh, if I forget, it doesn't forget. It takes care of it. And I also set that user agent in an environment variable. So you can see here up at the top of this box, I've got it set in the agent variable. And what that does is that lets me reuse that really easily without having to go and copy and paste it from somewhere right into other commands. So if there's a command like down at the bottom, I've got WP scan. I, I want to throw the user agent into that command, but I don't want to have to go dig it up. And I don't want my copying and pasting to be prone to user error. Then I can just throw dollar sign agent in there and it's going to fill in the blank for me. Changing the user agent for uh, your web browser is equally just as simple. Uh, you can use extensions uh, like for Firefox, for example, I linked to the uh, user agent switcher and manager extension, but uh, I like to do it manually myself. The reason that I really like to do it manually is because I try and keep as small of a number of tools installed on, this, on my testing systems as I can, because each tool is another tool that I need to vet and I need to trust. So uh, if it's an extension that's made by somebody you know, who I don't know and I haven't vetted that extension, I'd prefer to do it manually. So if you follow the, the numbers in the screenshots there, it'll walk you through changing your user agent in Firefox. It's really simple. You just open up the about config and change one setting in there. There are other ways that browsers can leak information about the, the things you're doing as well. This screenshot is from, from the Google Chrome browser. So uh, I'll read you this text because it's kind of small. It says, sends URLs of some pages you visit and some page content to Google to help discover new threats and protect everyone on the web. That's pretty much the opposite of what I want as an attacker. 
I definitely don't want URLs or page content of my phishing landing pages or anything like that uh, getting sent back to Google. And I definitely don't want everybody using the Google Chrome browser to start getting alerts that pop up and say, this website's malicious. That would be pretty terrible. So make sure you turn all that stuff off. If you know, you might make your browser decisions that you're going to use on your systems, you know, based on some of this information about what they leak. And and you may use different browsers at different stages in your uh, process as well. So early on, whenever maybe everything's not set up, OPSEC safe, you know, you're not filtering any user agents that are coming in or things like that from, you know, external connections to your phishing server, then, uh, you know, maybe don't use browsers that are going to leak that kind of information during that phase of the exercise. After I've assessed my own local system locally, I'm going to take a look at source IP addresses that I'm using whenever I do different steps of the attack or the recon. And I've noted three different criteria here that might make an IP address suspicious. So we've got association with other suspicious traffic, the physical location associated with the IP address, and the service provider and type of connection. Those two I kind of lumped together in number three because I think they're kind of related. And I've got a list of some of the different types of uh, type of connection, you know, a, a connection might be categorized as. And in the screenshots, these are two different screenshots taken from looking at two different IP addresses on whatismyipaddress.com and the information that was immediately available whenever I looked up the, those IP addresses. So you can see, uh, like on the right-hand side screenshot, we've got the ISP, the organization that the ISP is, like those are the same for that one the services that have been observed from this IP address, the type, you know, is it corporate or residential? Is it a static IP address? What location is the IP address coming from? So all of those things are immediately available just, you know, by typing in an IP address. And the blue team also has access to that information. So they can very quickly categorize the IP addresses that you're operating from. And they may block some or, or do other actions based on that categorization. The screenshot on the left was the screenshot of doing the same test while connected to the Tor network. And you'll see that under services there, we've got confirmed proxy server, Tor exit node, and recently reported forum spam source. So this is gonna be an extremely suspicious IP address to be operating from. So those are things to take into account. You wanna make sure you vet your IP addresses that you're coming from whenever before you do anything with them. Uh, some countermeasures uh, that you can use whenever vetting those source IP addresses or whenever you're trying to disguise some of your actions or prevent the blue team from catching on. One, never use the same IP address with any two activities that you don't want associated with each other. So just like in the previous slide, you know, one of those IP addresses was already associated with uh, you know, forums being spam. You might be doing some port scanning or something like that. You don't want to do, you know, say phishing, for example, or hosting your, your malicious payload on the same IP address that you just used for port scanning. Uh, you want to use a totally different IP address for that. Also, IP addresses should make sense relative to your actions from that IP. Uh, so using this in the context of uh, logging into user accounts, you know, as you get you know, usernames and passwords and you want to test them, first off, Use just one IP address for each user account and keep using that same IP address for all logins to that account. Like when you're working from home, 
you know, you're logging in from the same IP address every day, and probably nobody else that you work with is logging in from your IP address. That's how it happens in the real world. So you want to mimic that behavior as much as possible. Also, log in from an IP address that's in the same region as the user that you're targeting. And you'll see this screenshot on the right-hand side. That was from Gmail. And to get that screenshot, all I did was I just logged into my Gmail account from an IP address that was in a location that I didn't normally log in from. And they automatically sent me a message saying, hey, we noticed you know, a new device in this case is how they worded it. But that was a suspicious thing. It was still the same user agent, same web browser. Everything was the same, except I hadn't logged in from that IP address before. So this is really common for you know Gmail, for Office 365, for a lot of services on the internet. They'll, they'll send you these kind of messages. And since those services can do that so easily, we can also infer that you know the blue team can probably do that just as easily. And if they're using any of those services, like many organizations are using Office 365 internally, then those features are already like built right in. So uh, that's something we definitely have to watch out for because if we don't watch out for that, users are going to get that message. They're going to go in. They're going to change their password because they say, "Hey, I didn't just log in from you know some IP address in Transylvania," and after they change their password, we're not going to have access to that account anymore. And so that might, might have been the only account that we had. Also, log in from a service provider that makes sense for the target user. So probably not a VPS. Like most companies probably don't have their employees logging in from some random computer in Amazon AWS or uh, you know in Azure or something like that. And like I said before, avoid those known suspicious IPs. Tor exit nodes already suspicious. Public proxy servers already suspicious. So watch out for those kind of things whenever you're logging into user accounts. Also, when you are using a VPN, make sure your VPN connection fails safe. Like I, I kind of mentioned that fail safe term before. If, if I'm in the middle of a password spraying attack and it's running from my system, but I'm connected to a VPN, and then in the middle of that password spraying attack, my VPN connection goes down. Everything else is still working, but the VPN connection goes down. What's going to happen in many cases is that that password spraying is going to continue, but now the source is going to be the IP address at my house. And I don't want that, especially if you're testing, uh, say, you know, a big content delivery network and uh, they blacklist your IP address and now you can't access a lot of the content on the internet. So this first box here is the command that I use whenever I'm connecting to an open VPN, VPN server that runs this script that's listed in the second box. And what that does is if my VPN connection goes down, then OpenVPN will run that script for me. And that script will just bring all of my network interfaces down so that now my VM is no longer connected to the network whatsoever. So maybe that, you know, it keeps trying to spray those passwords, but uh, they're not going anywhere. And I'm definitely not generating that malicious traffic. And that's what I want. Other third-party services, so, you know, meaning other in, like, as an addition to your uh, source IP addresses that we just covered, whenever you're looking at new third-party services that you're going to use during a red team exercise, assess whether that information, information or registration information that you provide them is likely to be exposed to the public. Some third-party services do expose that information publicly. Also assess whether the use of the same account across multiple projects might leak information about you or your customers. You know, so, uh, you know, could someone on the internet say, like, just identify that all these accounts are owned by the same company 
and uh, and they're named in such a way that we can tell that their customers are, are customer A, B, and C. You know, maybe something like that. Or could they tell that you're the one that owns that account? Maybe it makes more sense to set up brand new third-party service accounts for each red team exercise that you do in order to have that extra layer of security. Also, identify any additional areas of concern. Uh, this is going to be different for every service that you use. Some services may you know, have extra features or other things, just the nature of the service may bring up other opportunities for information to leak out. One of the third-party services that is really commonly used by us on red team exercises is uh, domain name registrars. So we'll go out and we'll register new domain names, either in pre preparation for a red team exercise down the road, or maybe you know during an ongoing red team exercise. One thing you want to make sure you do is always turn on private registration. It's also called who is privacy and make sure that's enabled by default on your account. You want to make sure that when you register the domain, there is not a gap between when the domain was actually registered and when that who is privacy was enabled on the domain. And the reason for that is there are third parties out there who are logging that registration information and they have databases that can be queried to find historical who is information and your information will show up in there if the privacy was not enabled right out of the gate. Also, just like with IP addresses, you want, you want to segregate the domains by whatever purpose you're using them for. So you don't want to send email, serve your payload files, and receive C2 callbacks all from one domain. Uh, do each of those things from a different domain. Every action that you do ideally should come from a different domain name. Or if you're going to do you know, multiple actions from the same domain name, maybe it's uh, actions that you don't care as much about them being associated with each other. Some other concerns about domain names. Typo squatting has been a pretty common red team tactic for a few years, but these days it's not really safe to do. There are services out there that will detect typo squatting. And when you register a domain that is mimicking one of their customers, they will send an email to that customer telling them, you know, this domain was just registered and it's pointing at such and such IP address. And then the blue team can act on that. These services also detect subdomains. So I went out to the DNS Twister website and I just typed in blackhillsinfosec.com and immediately got back three cases of typo squatting in the results. Now, if you look closely at those, you'll see that the first one is uh, just a domain. It's blackhillsinfosec.com and it's missing an L in the word hills. But the second and third in those ones that I've got circled there are actually subdomain and parent domain names that combine to spell Black Hills InfoSec. So like the first one is blackhillsin.fosec.com. So just because you get tricky with your subdomain naming doesn't mean that that's not going to get detected. This took no time to come up. This was instant. And these services, they, they will alert the blue team to that kind of thing immediately. Also, SSL and TLS certificates. Uh, when you generate these certificates from certificate authorities, that information can also be exposed, like in certificate transparency logs. And this is something, generating those certificates, that we also do very commonly during red team exercises. So say, for example, if you have a domain, maybe it's a generic sounding domain name, but you use customer names for the subdomains of that domain, and that's what you use during your exercises. Well, if you reuse that across multiple customers, 
then that information could be leaked. If you generated an SSL certificate for each of those subdomains, uh, someone could just go out and query the certificate transparency logs for that domain and find all of those subdomains. And that could expose the names of all of your customers. Also, you could expose your work email address in the certificate itself if you use it to register for that certificate. So you know that would be a dead giveaway if the blue team is uh, in, they're investigating some server out on the internet and they're suspicious about it. They investigate the SSL certificate and looking through it, they see M Allen at BlackHillsInfoSec.com. Then that's going to be a dead giveaway that this is part of a red team exercise. So you don't want that. I always use the dash dash register unsafely without email flag whenever I'm requesting a certificate from Let's Encrypt for that reason. So I've included that uh, command there. Also, don't ever use any default or self-signed certificates. They're very easy to either flag or block. Self-signed certificates, it would be very easy to just create a a rule that would block all of those outright. And then uh, the default certificates, anything that's default in a hacking tool is a bad idea on a red team exercise. So here I've got the, uh, the fingerprint for the default certificate that comes with Cobalt Strike. Uh, that was just up on the Cobalt Strike blog, so that didn't take any effort for me to get or anything. And I went out to census.io and searched for that. And sure enough, I found 362 team servers out there on the internet that are using this default certificate. So I really hope they're not running red team exercises right now. Hopefully they're just testing out Cobalt Strike. Also, something else to think about as you know, you start thinking about these ideas, is a lot of hacking tools and tutorials that you find online, they mention Let's Encrypt as the default certificate authority to get those SSL or TLS certificates. And any kind of default like that you want to be suspicious of. They're also free, which makes them you know, very likely to be abused by attackers. And really the only thing that maybe makes them worthwhile still is because there are a lot of legitimate websites that are also using those Let's Encrypt certificates. But that's just something to think about. Maybe it would make sense to kind of mix up where you're getting certificates from in future projects uh, if, if you've been getting them all from Let's Encrypt. Uh, so next is network services. Just like I mentioned earlier, you know, there's threat actors out on the internet, just like anybody who's running services and servers on the internet. Best practices to not expose any services that aren't required to be exposed. So if there's anything that you can you know, just block all incoming access to, just go ahead and do that. And if it's something that only the red, red team needs access to, use SSH port forwarding for the red team to get access to it. The reason I recommend SSH port forwarding instead of like IP tables rules and IP whitelisting and stuff like that is it's kind of easy to mess up the IP whitelisting or blacklisting rules and accidentally have too much access and and maybe you're letting in too many IP addresses. But if you just block everything and the only way to access that port is by forwarding a port over SSH, it's much easier to get that right. Also, you know, change any default ports that do have to be exposed that are, you know, changeable in the context of whatever you're doing with them. Of course, you wouldn't change the default ports that were available for a web server because those need to be the default ports. But if it's something you can change, change it. And also use redirectors as much as possible. And in the case of uh, any web servers where you're running redirectors, if you have like a HTTP or HTTPS beacon, for example, use legitimate web services like Apache and Nginx 
to redirect that traffic to your C2 server. On this next slide, I'm going to kind of walk you through each of those things I just talked about and describe some indicators that came from the Cobalt Strike team server study. This was published on the Cobalt Strike blog. So none of this came from me. This all came out of a blog post on there. But these really help illustrate some of those things that I was talking about. So indicator number one is TCP port 50,050. That's the default Cobalt Strike team server port. So that's a dead giveaway right there that Cobalt Strike is running on this system if you see that you know, port 50,050 is open. Uh, so definitely don't expose that to the internet. Have all your red team operators connect to the SSH service and then forward their traffic to that port uh, locally you know, inside the firewall. Also, very similar to that, if you're using DNS for beaconing, the Cobalt Strike DNS server responds to DNS requests with an IP address of 0000. So again, very suspicious, uh, you know, very positive confirmation that that is Cobalt Strike team server that's running there. So something that you don't want. You can go into the, uh, the Malleable C2 profile and change that so that there's a different default set so that you're not you know, broadcasting to the world that this is a team server. And then uh, touching on those redirectors that I talked about on the last slide. So if your team server is listening with an HTTP listener and you don't have any content specifically specified for the root of the web server, uh, with Cobalt Strike, it's going to give you a 404 not found error when you browse to that root web root location. It's going to have no content in the page. And it's going to have a content type of text slash plain. And that response is a pretty good indicator that there may be a team server running there as well. In addition to that, the JA3S service fingerprinting can be used to uh, add another confirmation that there's probably a team server running. So this type of fingerprinting, what it does is... Uh, Basically, each different type of, of network service that's running, be it an Apache web server or an Nginx web server or a Cobalt Strike web, web server or whatever others, uh, each one is going to generate its own fingerprint whenever it receives incoming traffic. And that fingerprint can be used to identify whatever's there, since that fingerprint's going to be the same across you know, other similar web servers. Well, there are thousands of Apache or Nginx or other dedicated web servers out on the internet. But there's a relatively very small number of web servers on the internet that have the same fingerprint as Cobalt Strike team servers have. The fingerprint that they have is a Java-based web server fingerprint. And because there's such a small number of servers, that would be something that blue teams could also alert on that would uh, signal that this is probably a Cobalt Strike team server. But if you have HTTP or HTTPS redirectors set up that are running on real web servers, you know, uh, Apache, Nginx, others like that, and they forward those web requests to your team server, then the fingerprint is going to be detected and the 404 not found page that's going to be displayed for any pages that are not found is going to be the, the fingerprint or the 404 not found page of that web server. It's not going to be the one that your team server provides. And that way, uh, you get a little bit of extra protection. So that way it's not as obvious there is a team server running on the other side of that redirector. Lastly, testing new tools. So anytime you, you use a new tool that you haven't used before, you want to vet that tool. You want to do three things. You want to make sure that the tool will not harm you or your customer. 
You want to identify and mitigate any tails that could give away your attack to your target. And also number three, you want to make sure that the tool does the thing it's supposed to do. And that's how I prioritize those things. So number three is pretty important because if it doesn't do what it's supposed to do, it's, there's no point in running it. But you have to go through the process of you know, making sure that it's going to cause no harm and it's not going to give you away in addition to making sure it actually does the thing that it's supposed to do. And these are my steps for vetting a tool over here on the right. I'm not going to claim to be very good at probably any of them, but those are the ones that I recommend. I've also got some recommendations in that bottom bullet for how you can observe the traffic that the tool generates. You know, we don't always have access to the software that we're targeting with any new tool. So the way that I'll take a look at that target, uh, that traffic is if it's clear text, I can just look at it in Wireshark, piece of cake. If it's encrypted, I might want to proxy it through Burp if it's sending web requests. So that way I can see what those uh, web requests are. Even, you know, even if they're encrypted, I can still see what that decrypted uh, request looks like. And uh, also you can try simulating the target with like MCAT or NETCAT. You can open up a port and just aim the tool at that port and you'll see what it's sending into the port. So to give you an example of using this process, this is uh, Evil Jinx, and it's a tool for phishing against web services that have multi-factor authentication enabled. And so this is actually a situation that I ran into where I kind of had to go through this process and learn some lessons. So this is me running Evil Jinx for the first time. So the first thing I did was I downloaded the latest pre-compiled release from GitHub, keywords there. Number two, I configured a fishlet. That's Evil Jinx speak for your configuration that targets you know, whatever website, in this case, Office 365. Number three, I generated a lure, which is the landing URL that you're going to send to your phishing victim. And then I visited the lure in my browser because I wanted to see what this looks like to the person on the other end. And number five, everything looks okay, right? Like the screenshot there looks just fine. Uh, then I pasted this lure into Google Chat and uh, everything did not look okay. Uh, you'll see in that screenshot that there is a, a preview of the Rickroll video from YouTube for some reason showing up with my URL. And I'm like, why in the world did this happen? So, sorry, wrong button. So I started looking into this and uh, looking into the source code some there, I found that there is a default redirect URL that by default links to this YouTube video. And there's a comment next to it that says Rickroll. So easy enough fix. I went in and I changed some uh, a configuration option with a config command, and I could change that to any website I wanted it to be. It's not the Rickroll video anymore, so I'm all good. Uh, lesson learned, you know, read the source code and understand those configuration options. Well, that button keeps getting me. Lesson learned, I thought, but there's more. So while looking into that, searching around on the internet, I found this tweet from Kuba Gretzky, the creator of Evil Jinx. And the tweet says, tip for blue teams, look for the X Evil Jinx HTTP header in the requests. And I'm like, what X Evil Jinx HTTP header? Well, so at that point, I decided I would take a look at the traffic and I inspected that traffic with Burp Suite. Uh, sure enough, on line number eight there in the request that Evil Jinx makes to the Microsoft Office 365 login page, it was including the X Evil Jinx header that included as a value 
the fully qualified domain name of my attack website. And I definitely didn't want to leak that information, especially if I was going to be targeting, you know, not Microsoft. Like if I'm sending a, a request to something that's hosted by the target organization, that would be even worse. The blue team would have direct access to that information. So I started looking for ways to remove that header. I looked through the settings. I didn't find any settings to change or disable that header. I didn't find any mention of it in the documentation. And uh, I also didn't find any references to it whenever I searched the source code. You can see my grep command there. I was trying to search through all the files in the source code that I downloaded from GitHub to see if there was any mention of it, but there was none. So looking more closely here, I found that in the httpproxy.go file in the source code, there were actually three different sections of code that had been spread out across uh, several different lines that were not all together in the source code that put this header back into that request three separate times That's to make sure that if I removed just one of them, which I did, and I, then I wondered why me removing it didn't work. If I removed just one of them, it wouldn't fix the problem. So after a lot of grepping and a lot of reading through that file, I, I found it. What really gave it away was the words like nothing to see here and uh, can't find me. So uh, I was a little fortunate that those were in there. But fortunately, after I did that, I removed all those lines from the code. I compiled the source code that I had modified. I inspected the outgoing traffic again, and no more X evil jinx header. So another lesson learned, always inspect the network traffic, uh, because if you're like me, you're probably really terrible reading source code, especially if it's in uh, languages you're not really that familiar with. and you, you might get some better results if you check out the network traffic. And that's the end of my webcast. So thank you all for listening. Michael. Hey, great job. Thank you. you know, for your first time. That was smooth. Very smooth. Very easy, articulate, very easy to understand. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. All right. So we do have a couple questions. So I'm going right. to go through here. The team was doing a pretty good job and the community was doing a good job responding to questions throughout. This question came from Jim says, I have observed that VMs may inhibit some capabilities. The presenter is recommending using VMs as he observed constraints testing with VMs. Yeah, uh, I did run into a situation where, like I I've run into, for example, a VPN client that for whatever reason would not run inside of a VM. So I, I just have to take those situations on a case-by-case -case basis. That particular VPN client, it was something really weird. I don't even remember what the name of it was, but it was one I hadn't run into before. And what I ended up having to do was just to, you know, take an extra computer, install Windows on it, and uh, go with a fresh install on a new machine. So that way I still had my you know, relatively safe environment that's not going to like leak any other customer data, but that I could get that working on. But those situations are usually pretty rare in my experience. So I don't, fortunately, I don't run into that a ton. Otherwise, I might have to keep an extra computer or something laying around for that purpose. This question wasn't asked, but I want to know. What's the one time you got caught that made you really like want to start? being better at OPSEC. Okay. The, actually, there were some stories that I had to cut from this presentation because of time. 
So one of those stories, and let me see if I can go back through and find the slides that were kind of related to it. It was uh, in regard to cloud service providers. So the IP address kind of relates to this, uh, talking about not using the same source IP address. Just like you don't use the same source IP address for everything that you do, you also want to not use the exact same cloud service provider for everything that you do. This happened on a red team that I was on at another company, not so not with BHIS, but uh, it just so happened that we were using the same cloud service provider for all of our red team infrastructure. Now, they weren't the same servers, but they were all hosted by the same company. So the blue team actually was able to figure that out ahead of time. What happened was for every one of those servers that we stood up, we went out and we registered typo squatted domain names and they got alerts that told them that all, the, all these domain names have been registered that look like your company's domain name. And they then saw the IP addresses that those were all pointing to. And they went and investigated those IP addresses and found out they're all pointing to IPs that are on this same cloud service provider. And we don't have any customers or employees who will have connections coming from that cloud service provider. So let's just block all, all traffic to that cloud service provider. So we were really, really successful in getting payloads through to this particular customer. It was to the point that like, I was in a, a chat with employees. There were new employees. It was like an online onboarding process that this company did because they were a big company and they had employees all over the place. So they, they had everybody join like a WebEx. And uh, I was in the chat and I'm literally telling these people, you know, type this command into your computer and run it. And they're doing it because I'm telling them, you know, this is going to fix like a microphone issue. We're getting feedback from your microphone on the conference call or whatever. And I'm from, you know, I'm from the help desk. I'm from IT. And they were doing it. And we could see that they were doing it. But we could never get that command and control channel established. And it was because that ahead of time, the blue team had already, before we even knew it, they had already blocked our mm. infrastructure. So yeah, that's where uh, a bunch of the stuff that I mentioned in here comes from is because uh, that, that one in particular, they were really, really good at staying on top of us and getting things done ahead of us before we could even, you know, before we, our attack even got going. <laughs> All right, everybody, that is the end of the official Black Hills Information Security. We have OPSEC Fundamentals with Michael Allen. Reminder, he does have a red team class coming up with the Wallbus Hackenfest. So if you're interested in that, I think I dropped the link and go to webinar and in Discord. But we hope you enjoyed today's webcast. If you ever need a pen test, you know where to find us. What we're going to do right now is we're going to end the official webinar, but we're going to stick around for like five, six 10 minutes, maybe answer your questions. Also, Deb's going to come back on, on to uh, the webcast so that we can talk about backdoors and breaches for a second because we've got a cool thing that we think you might like. So, Michael Allen, thank you so much. you have any final words? Nope. <laughs> I didn't prepare any final words. <laughs> Uh, all right, everybody. All right, so the webcast is over. We're in what's called post-show banter right now, so more casual, laid back. My question for you is, do you prefer red team exercises or do you prefer standalone penetration tests? I like red team exercises a lot because you can get really creative. It's It's a lot more fun to be like a real attacker instead of just 
kind of being limited both both in terms of time and in like what your scope is you're allowed to go after. Uh, So red teams are definitely my favorite, but they are a little more high stress because I get way more into them. So Mm -hmm. I feel like the stakes are higher with red teams. Uh, You know, it's kind of like you can do whatever you want, but also there's uh, there's uh, it's a little bit harder to succeed. Like you're working against an active defender. So uh, I guess that that probably adds to the fun as well. Yeah, red teams for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, someone asked earlier about how to get started in red teams. So they're in IT and they're like, hey, I want to get in red teams. And so do you have any thoughts on how people can get started in red teaming? I don't know what the right answer is, but I can tell you what I did. Yeah. Uh, so I started by hacking for fun for a long time. And if you're, if, so that's the, like the main thing I think in this industry is uh, if you do it for fun, it's going to be easy enough to do it for long enough that you'll get good at it. So, you know, if, if you kind of, if you get into it for the wrong reasons or anything, then I kind of would recommend staying away from it because this is the kind of thing where you, you need to put in a lot of practice. And if, you know, people who get good at things, practice is fun for them. But you know, for people who the practices work for, you know, they, they had to work really hard. So that was, that was how I got into hacking to begin with, at least, was just hacking for fun for years. And then, and I had an IT background coming out of school and stuff. And I started out as a pen tester. So I got my first job as a pen tester with Coal Fire and did that, worked my way up in that. And then, then, you know, as you become a senior pen tester, that's when they start letting you do red teams, or at least that's how it was whenever I first got hired there. So I kind of worked my way up from pen testing to doing the red teams. And, uh, and then it's just kind of gone from there. But that would, that would be my recommendation is, you know, if you really enjoy hacking, then start working your way into a pen testing role and then, you know, try and get into a red teaming role from there. It might be different with some places where you could get hired. Like some places would probably let you, you know, start doing red teaming right out of the gate. You, there's always option of, you know, becoming a, like independent contractor, consultant kind of thing, going that route too. So, you know, my my answer is not exactly the right answer. It was just my answer. Kat wants to know, as a purple teamer, so there's the comment and a question. So as a purple teamer, this was really great and opened my eyes to some things that I was missing, especially the evil jinx header. Any other gathered tips, tricks, rather than going through the whole deck? Like... Um, none that none that come to mind right off the top of my head. The evil jinx thing was like when I was thinking about this uh, topic, it, w- it just illustrated it so well because that was one of the times that I've found something in a tool that was obviously put there to trip up people that didn't actually pay attention to what the tool was really doing, which mm-hmm. included myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, that it was just a perfect example. Other things, you know, I guess probably the fact that I don't have anything else to pull off the top of my head like that is probably a good indication that there are probably other things like that that are happening on stuff that I'm doing right now that I don't even know about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think Chad said, maybe this is a loaded question, but what is the general amount of time spent on a red team engagement? Are you solely working on one engagement at a time or several at a time? That really changes a lot from like red team 
company, the company that's performing the red team exercise to the next. Also, it's there's a big difference between red teams that are internal to an organization versus external, like third-party red teams. So I can really only speak to third-party consulting red teams. And the ones that, the, the companies that I've been at, there are red teams that, that last quite a while. And usually those are ones that uh, the customer has specifically said, we want you know, this red team exercise to last for you know, a month or two months or three months or whatever. Right now, the, the standard with BHIS is typically uh, like two testers for three weeks on the red team. And uh, we'll, we'll usually spend anywhere from like one week to one and a half weeks on the first like the gaining access portion of the red team. And if we haven't got access somehow by that you know, midway point, then we'll uh, switch over to assumed breach mode so that that way the, the customer gets an idea of you know, what their security posture looks like if somebody does get in. Now, that said, pretty much everywhere that I've worked, if it is kind of a short-term red team like that, the testers that are on it are doing things leading up to the red team. Like if they have any... Sp- Spare time at work, which you know, I don't know. Maybe more people have spare time at work than I do. But, um, I guess I'm pretty bad at time management. But uh, if there is any spare time at work, it's spent preparing for that red team. So that's something I talk about in the class too. There are things that you can do ahead of time that aren't necessarily attacks. You know, your reconnaissance, preparing. Like you can get things ready enough before the red team starts. But ideally, if you had enough time to do that, then you can be ready to just push a button on day one of the red team and some of your attacks are ready to go. And then you can spend the rest of that time, you know, looking for those, those one-off vulnerabilities, the, the really cool stuff like, uh, you know, zero days in web apps or something like that. But Justin Angel is really good at on our team. He, he found one of those in the last red team me and him did together. And it was really great. But uh, yeah, that's typically like, uh, you know, you're looking at a total of six six working weeks, two testers for three weeks, and, you know, whatever time we can add to it to to get a little bit of a head start before that. We're going to take about two more questions. We got a bunch of them. So what I'm going to do is send you all the questions. And then if you're like, hey, here's an idea to write a blog or here's, you know, something else to add to the class or here's a future webcast, maybe we okay. can do that. Next question is for, I like this. So I like all your questions evenly. But this one, I really like a little more. This one's for remote red teams using an implant, e.g. like a Raspberry Pi. Do you usually connect back to your infrastructure through the client network or using an outbound solution, out-of-band solution? That depends on the context of the implant. So if it's something that the, the customer has like given us access to their network with that implant, we're usually connecting back through their network. That's usually the assumed breach portion is when we would do that type of thing. Usually when we're connecting through some other connection, be it like a cellular connection or maybe the guest Wi-Fi in the building next door or something like that, that's usually a red team where we've gotten physical access covertly somehow. And we plugged that Dropbox in ourselves, and we're using that channel to get back. The usually, we, yeah, usually the way we have to work for when we we use an implant like that on on a remote red team is that the the customer gives us that access. Now, 
one thing that I like to do is whenever possible, if we, if we can, instead of getting that access, either have access to a workstation or a virtual desktop, you know, as though we have compromised an employee's account and are now working through that employee's account, I would prefer that because that really doesn't give as much of a tell, especially if it's like a remote employee or someone that's expected to be connecting in remotely that week. Or to provide our point of contact with the actual beacon payload, uh, you know, just an executable file and have them run that on some system in their network or maybe more than one and see if, you know, will that beacon call back to us, you know, in such a way that the blue team doesn't pick up that C2 traffic. And then if so, we'll just operate from that and, uh, you know, go from there, just like we had actually been successful in the phishing attack or, you know, whatever attack that it was that would have got that payload to execute on the system. We're going to do one more question before we go. For everyone that purchased a Black Hills t-shirt today, they're super soft. But for everyone that ordered one, thank you so much. We're going to donate $2 of each shirt sold to the Rural Tech Fund. If you missed the part where we talked about the Rural Tech Fund, Rural Tech Fund. RTF. RTF. You can go to our ruraltechfund.com. You're, we're going to donate $2 to the Rural Tech Fund. So thanks for doing that. And then if anybody wants a personal demo, I put Deb's email in the uh, go to webinar chat. All right. So last question. Has there ever been a time where you were doing your attack and had to stop or switch to blue because the company had another malicious attack happening simultaneously? No, there hasn't been one on a project that I was on. I have heard stories from other testers where they did come across something like that. My friend Corey, he was on a a project. I don't remember if it was a red team or a pen test, but uh, he he was checking remote desktop sessions to see if if there were any backdoors installed. And I think there's, if I remember right, there's a tool to do that that he was using. But I mean, it's you just you know you connect to the remote desktop. A service, and if they don't have uh, cred SSP or NLA enabled, then you'll actually get a login box on your, you know, in the remote desktop window. And you know, you can do things like press Shift five times, which is the sticky keys hotkey, and make that little uh, box pop up. Well, if somebody's compromised that system, or you know, if I've compromised that system because I do this, then I'll stick a back door on there where if you press Shift five times, or you press Windows key U, or whatever it is, then instead of the sticky keys dialog popping up, a command prompt will pop up or some other equally useful thing like task manager because some places will alert on command prompt. So yeah, he was connecting to these remote desktop services that were facing the internet and he hits shift you know, five times and a command prompt pops up and he talks to the customer and he's like, did you guys know that this back door is installed on this system? And their immediate reaction was, yeah, we knew that. That's how our administrators connect remotely into the network when they're working from home. And that was not true at all. That they were totally breached and uh, we had to stop the test at that point or he did. And uh, and I when we when something like that happens, uh, I'm never on the team on the part of the team that goes into the, you know the the blue team mode and, and helps uh with any kind of defense or anything like that because my Background is 100% offensive, so I, mm-hmm. I don't really have a lot of uh, insight to give, unfortunately. But they did have to switch into that incident response mode and, uh, and start you know, trying to figure out what was going on there. 
Yeah, there's been a few times we've played backdoors and breaches internally, and you all are so good at offense that we're like, all right, so how would you defend against this attack? You're like, uh. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how to defend stuff. I just break them. Yeah. <laughs> really <laughs> Which is why now we have the purple team and blue team services, just to, in case people are like, so you broke all this, now how do you fix it? We're like, oh, we got a guy for that, or a person for that. <laughs> yep. All right, everybody, that is the end of Post Show Banter today. Thank you so much for sticking around. 660 of you stuck around, so hopefully, I'm sorry, you have to go either back to work, or it's either nighttime and you're drinking because you're overseas or you're not, or whatever the case is, wherever you're at in the world, thank you so much for joining us today. Michael, thank you for this presentation and your insights and sharing your knowledge with the community. And we'll see y'all next time. Bye. Bye. I'm ending webinar. I hate that uh, my ears off. So it makes my glasses off. It's fine. Just the way God made me. <laughs>